Welcome to What Goes Around podcast. On this week's show, we talk about CDs and DVDs. The soundtrack to the end of the world. Sound system culture. Lobsters. And Pete Rogers from Technomatic talks about his phonographic memories. Eamon Murda, DJ Eamon Murda. What goes around in your world this week? Well, mostly this week, uh, we we are recording this around the uh, holiday season of Christmas, so most of this week has been spent with me uh, looking in vain for presents and things that used to be easy. You're great at presents, I don't know what you're talking well, about. I know, but do you remember back in the good old days before the digital horrendous nightmare you know, we'll now suffer under? <laughs> you mean the very convenient internet with e-commerce? I mean the, the days when... Granny and uncle and brother and dad and all that could all be fobbed off with CDs and DVDs that took you ten <laughs> minutes to choose. Do you remember those days? Yeah, that was pretty good. I quite I used to quite enjoy getting um, CDs as well. Now people send them to me in the post as promos, and I throw them in the bin. <laughs> <laughs> they won't anymore. <laughs> send me records. Oh um, yeah, no one throws a record away. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, but I, the thing is, you can't give someone a digital download code. It's not the it's not, it's not the same. It's not the same, do you know? Yeah, yeah. Here you are, darling. Type this in. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, because it is like, if you were really rubbish at buying presents back in the day, then you'd just get, like, the book token or the, yeah. or the record token. And that was like, uh, I like you, but I'm busy, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Whereas... In the in the golden days, when mm. you could, when you actually you could actually feign like you had some interest in the person mm. by saying, "I know you like comedy, so I bought you a really bog standard stand up <laughs> DVD that's only out during Christmas." <laughs> or if you um, if you have uh, like a a, a a parent, it was a good you know I'd give my mum the best of Nat King Cole or something mm. like that, or Loretta Lynn or something, and she'd be over the moon. Or if I give her a a, a DVD of Brideshead Revisited or some crap like that, <laughs> that used to be. 10 minutes shopping. Mm. Now, mate, I can't deal with it. I can't deal with it. <laughs> you can't really say, I compiled you this YouTube playlist. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this video is not available in your country. <laughs> no, it's not quite the same. I tell you what, I had an amazing... Uh, my boyfriend, Tim, is extremely good at uh, picking gifts. I think he just enjoys the... I, I like receiving gifts, you see, so it's the perfect match. Mm. And I think he enjoys seeing my face when I open presents and uh, I got a reminder on Facebook that two years ago he had um, slip mats made for me, my own personal slip mats. Oh, that's such love. a good present! That's such love. a good present. Best present I ever got. Uh, my darling wife Lucy. Uh, she um, she's a screen printer, and she screen printed record dividers for me. You know, a, a B C D E. That's who did those. Yeah, man. And I've had them for like present. 15 years now. But it's it was just such a because normally I've got these ratty bits of cardboard mm. sticking out with you know disco or techno or whatever but then she made all these lovely like nicely printed ones and they're getting mm. a bit tatty now but, well um, was that a passive aggressive was there a tiny five percent of passive aggression in there seeing as she lives in the house as well no. and your records take up an entire wall of the front room i am fortunate to, to have a very understanding and supportive partner <laughs> Who loves her music Same. too? He knows that we can never live together because there's no space for him because of my records. <laughs> <laughs> there's something between us, Anne. Uh, yeah, yeah it's about physical, 212 like inches. Sensitive. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway, oh, that's cute. I, have you come up with a solution for this? What are you going to do? It's not that long till Christmas now. It's next week. Yeah, bar humbug. <laughs> that's your approach. 
Yeah, screw everyone. <laughs> that's not going to get No, it's, it's in books now, isn't it? It's books. It's all, that's the yes, last that bastion. That is so, it's so books. true. Your books are just the, yeah, the physical thing that people will always expect. Here, have a weight of paper you'll never open again after. Yes, that's true. Uh, I'm just going to kick things off, possibly related to uh, current events and events of the last couple of weeks. I put the question out to people, what song would soundtrack the end of the world? And uh, there were some choice responses. Uh, Somebody said the Benny Hill Show theme tune with a kind of uh, like blackened tooth woman giggling in a sort of an evil way. I can't imagine anything more sinister than yeah. the A-bomb going off to the sound of the Benny Hill thing. That guy, I happen to know that guy and he's a uh, practicing counsellor as well. <laughs> Maybe we should report him. I quite like the idea of just, um, you know, the heightened silliness of like, we're all going to die. <laughs> you know, you just be oh, like, God. oh, what a way to go out. This is it? This Sound- is the end? <laughs> Jesus. Someone else said uh, Babylon's Burning by The Ruts. Coincidentally, this is also the best soundtrack for a chase scene as far as that, as far as I'm aware, has never been used in a film. That needs to be corrected. Mm. We should get a word with Tim Plester and make him, oh, yeah, make him do He could do that for Let's us. Let's do that link up. Um, I think so, Babylon's Burning, by the way, is a very good shout because mm. that that's like a proper end of the world song, isn't it? Yeah. I don't know if I know that track. Can you play it for me? It's just, I think they're just punk shouting Babylon's Burning over and over again. That sounds pretty good. Yeah, that's great. Um, So Tim, very cleverly, uh, said End of the Road by Boys to Men. Ovs. (laughs) It's not the first one that occurs to me. If I go out of my, if I shuffle off my mortal coil to the sound of bump and grind, I I, I won't be happy. I'll kill myself again. (laughs) Not bump and grind. End of the, you were just hearing what you want to hear. End of the road by Boys to Men. Boys to Men are bump and grind. They're just slimy. That's a smoochy ballad. Exactly. I just hate all that. To the end of the road. Take your sincere harmonies and shove them up your. Too earnest, isn't it? It is. Uh, maybe I, the Benny Hill theme tune is better. Yeah, I would I would seriously prefer to go out on the Benny Hill theme than, than anything by Boys to Men. in some kind of mad direction but I'll just touch on this because this is something that I say to people sometimes and they look at me like I'm insane so I'm going to see if the look you give me translates over the airwaves so lobsters okay they have this enzyme <laughs> I can't wait to hear <laughs> the tells end of me this. everything I need to know but I'll continue <laughs> lobsters me, okay. me, me and Tim talk about this often okay. lobsters have this enzyme which means theoretically they could live forever their cells just keep regenerating oh. so unless they get injured really badly or like killed or eaten yeah. um, then uh, they could in theory live forever What what is stopping the human race from finding a way to replicate that enzyme and putting it into human beings. It's only a matter of time. Well, it probably is only a matter of time. And then won't the world become a really dull, incorrigible place full of old people that will not die? Just don't want to die. But if our cells are regenerating, then we'll just stay cool forever. Uh, It's a false economy, though, isn't it? Because you don't stay cool forever. 
You become increasingly <laughs> old and out of touch, right? Uh, your your, your spirit there. might live, but your body will still weaken. You'll still you'll still find it a struggle going up and down the stairs. You know, it, there's do. no such thing as a utopia. I think, uh, you know, I can, listen, lobsters. You want to live forever? Go ahead. I'm not. I'm not bothered. <laughs> All I'm saying is that I I I really don't. You know, mm. I, 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 it's not like I haven't got death wish. I don't want to, you know, conk out now. But at the same time, the idea of just more of this forever. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me what goes on. Well, uh, an excellent book has come out, uh, which I am very much enjoying. It's called Bass, Mids and Tops. Mm. And it's by um, electronic dance music journalist extraordinaire Joe Muggs and a very talented photographer called Brian David Stevenson. And basically, uh, they've got together and what they've tried to do is create um, a collection of interviews with various artists throughout the years for the last 40, 50 years, do you know what I mean, um, of people who have been brought up and brought uh, sound system culture to people's attention, do you know what I mean? So they, they basically went around and they started with the obvious kind of uh, reggae influence and the Windrush generation. And, of course, the whole Windrush scandal rumbling on at the moment gives it extra kind of power because you see what these people brought and, and the kind of community they made and how that community that they made then transferred into a wider community. And without doubt, sound system culture has shaped the last 30 years of music in this country to a large extent. You know, without, without the reggae sound systems of the 70s and early 80s, you wouldn't have had the rigs to run the big raves in the 90s. And you wouldn't have had the sort of dedication to bass and that low-end theory that you find running right through drum and bass, trip-hop, dubstep, all of these subcultures, garage, I mean, just loads and loads of them, grime, they all come out of this sound system culture. So it's like a really underrepresented part of UK history, really. And what they've done is it, it, it produced a very nice, very weighty tome, I might mm. add, a weighty tome. Really, the, the list of people that they've got in this book is incredible. Like everyone from Dennis Bovill um, through to Agent Sherwood, Norman Jay, uh, moving on to sort of modern times, DJ Storm. Uh, of course, it was half of chemistry and Storm mm. in the uh, drum bass era. Really underrepresented in terms of like musical history. You know, the, some of these people are real. They, they really changed the way that the people took in music. When you say sound system, just for people who aren't familiar, sound system is the actual, it's like a troupe that goes, this is my, my entry-level understanding of it. It's a troupe that goes around, it has like an actual sound system with like all the speakers and equipment and everything else. It's like a mobile disco. It's, it's, like, it's like a mobile disco, so it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we had those in Ireland. Yeah, it's like that. DJ so, PJ and his mobile disco. Probably considerably less mobile than DJ PJ, <laughs> I would think. Uh, I, well, it all comes really from the Windrush generation because when those people came over from, from the West Indies, uh, you know, they weren't allowed into the pubs on the whole. So, you know, they, they the places they could enjoy themselves and socialise were very limited indeed. So what they ended up doing is they would have house parties where, you know, everyone kind of draw straws and the shortest straw is like, I said, your house tonight. Right? <laughs> and then they'd go in, they'd remove all the furniture, stuff it all in one room. And then they'd sell tickets on the door or, you know, through word of mouth. And they would 
put these ordinary houses and fill them full of boxes of sound. And then they would play reggae till seven in the morning or the police came and turfed them all out. Sounds like my next door neighbour. Yeah, well, do you know, he might be part of the lineage of sound system culture. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like he's just living with the memories of sound system culture. He does like to put on his dub music from about 10am till 11pm every single day. I kind of love that uh, in one way, but I wouldn't want to live next door to it. But I remember in the early days of EastEnders, there was always a dub bass reggae soundtrack in, you know, just across the square. You could, they'd always be going, so are you going to the laundry? <laughs> <laughs> so they don't really hear that anymore, but um, that, was, that was a big thing. So these sound systems, you know, they, they, they became like, you know, you needed a crew to run it. So you've got to have someone who can drive. You've got to have someone who can build the thing. You've got to have someone who can maintain it and run it. You've got to have people who are willing to shift the boxes and put them in take the risk from getting done by the police you've got to have artists who come in and 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 get on the mic or play records or whatever it is you've got to have promotes. all of these things you know, build a real community and of course everyone loved it do you know what i mean and and suddenly you had uh, the notion of playing on a big system as opposed to just you know dj pj and his and his wheels of steel or whatever <laughs> it might DJ be PJ. <laughs> no, i don't mean to but you know music changes when it gets that loud it's not the same thing mm. so it's really interesting uh, just to to notice when you when you look at the history and the timings of these things how music evolved through having places that would represent those low frequencies in the way that the artists intended do you know what i mean so the hearing there's a long time for example where you might hear drum and bass on the radio or jungle on the radio late at night or something like that not on the mainstream but stuff but you, you get the odd thing and it always sounded terrible and you, no one could work out why anyone was interested in it because all it sounded like was of course that sounds right because you're missing half the song because mm. all the rest of it goes on frequencies that are way 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 below your transistor radio or your laptop speaker or any of that sort of stuff so why were they making this music that essentially couldn't be listened to on most people's stereo equipment? And, and the answer is the sound systems. And what sound systems do is they make big crowds get really excited, you know. So it's a really great book. Uh, and What's well, it called again? Remind us, Joe Moggs. It's, it's called Bass, Mids, Tops. And to give you a, an idea of how excellent um, an experience it was, because I went to the launch, uh, which is at Sounds of the Universe in Soho. And... Um, I, I, mean, I might have been a tiny bit late. But only a tiny bit late. It's only a book. I thought I'd walk in. No, absolutely rammed downstairs, all the way up the stairs. And I kind of got to it. I thought I, I couldn't hear a thing they were saying downstairs. And I was like, oh, God, I've just wasted all this time getting here and money. And then I realised I was in a record shop, so I kind of calmed down a bit. <laughs> but then, brilliantly, like in a, in a, in a kind of a lovely Jamaican-spirited moment, Suddenly, all these um, cocktails, rum cocktails, came flying up the stairs to the people that couldn't get in. So we all sat there at the top of the stairs going, well, we can't hear anything. We've got a drink. We're in a record store. Life's not so bad. So it was nice. It was nice. So I just, uh, I, I implore you all to go and search it out. Um, it's on Strange Attractor Press. Um, great photographs, fascinating interviews, you know, right throughout the last, you know, from the very latest grime and dubstep all the way back to the soul and reggae and rude boy sound systems of the 60s and 70s.
gonna, what we're gonna, what we're gonna do right here is go back. Way back, back into time. Tonight we take a trip down memory lane with musician and producer Pete Rogers. Pete is one half of drum and bass duo Technomatic. He's been making music with his production partner Andy Powell since 2007. Their first album Desire Paths was released in 2014 uh, and was named an album of the year by Mixmag and won Best Album at the National Drum and Bass Awards. They've released two more albums uh, since then, Better Perspective in 2016 and Through the Hours in 2019, both of which were nominated for Best Album at the Drum and Bass Awards too, and have remixed the likes of Moby and LTJ Bookham. Um, how is it having worked with the partner for a long time on a creative project? Um, it's been mostly fine. Okay. How did you meet? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Have you know Have you known no, each other for a long uh, yeah, time before I've you started making music? For God, years and years and years. Um, we actually met online. Cute. No, on a drum and bass production forum. That's adorable. Was it a Yahoo forum? It was. It was a website called Drum and Bass Arena, and they had a little forum inside the main forum, which was just for producers to kind of post up their shitty little tunes and critique each other. And yeah, we just got talking on there and um, the rest is history. Did you, were you looking for a partner to make music with at the Absolutely time? Or you not, just hit it no. off? And we just hit it off, started sending tunes back and forth. We worked on a few bits here and there and we, we quite quickly realised the stuff we were making together was way better than the stuff we were making on our own. So it, it made sense to kind of carry on that way. Um, how did you know that drum and bass was the music that you wanted to make? Well, um, I can talk about that. I mean, one of the tracks that I've chosen pretty much tells that whole story. Well, let's, well, let's do segue. It. Let's give us let's your first phonographic memory. Okay. So, well, I, I thought long and, long and hard about this one because it's, it's such an obvious choice. But in the end, I realised that I kind of couldn't not choose it. Mm -hmm. um, and it's LTJ Book of Music. Uh, so I'm from Luton originally. You know, Luton's got a lot of problems, had them then, still has them now. But to be honest, I had a really good childhood there. And one of the best things about Luton was, because it was, it's just up the M1 from London, around the M25, it had a really strong rave scene in the early 90s. Yeah, you had Exodus, the rave scene. Yeah, I used um, to get all those parties, we loved them. And you had, I mean, Swanee, legendary DJ was yeah. from Luton. Blame was from just down the road in uh, Dunstable. We had a great record shop called Soul Sense, where we used to go all the time. Um, but most importantly, there were some really good pirate radio stations around, particularly one called Pressure FM. And me and my mates, I'm not entirely sure how we cottoned onto it. Maybe it was from someone's older brother or something like that. How old were you at the time? I think I was about 13. Um, and up to then, I hadn't really had any kind of music I could call my own, you know, something completely fresh. And we just got completely obsessed by this radio station. And we used to go to each other's houses and have sleepovers and just listen all night until we fell asleep and tape them and swap them at school. And then I got into, yeah, going to Soul Sense and buying records. But at this time, it was sort of 1991, 92. So it was kind of in the middle of, as you say, hardcore, 
breaking off into jungle and and it was all very rough and ready um and i guess at that time i was in it more because it felt very transgressive and exciting and my mum and dad hated it yeah and, that's you it. Know, it was all it good was music starts there doesn't um, it yeah, <laughs> and then i got a tape and i heard lgj book of music for the first time and no word of a lie it, it did actually change my life yeah. for forever um it was it still had the drums it still had the bass it was still fast it was still exciting but it had this emotional payload which it just didn't have in the other music and yeah. i just became completely obsessed um i've always loved I don't know, I've always been quite a melancholy, um, introspective person. And it just spoke to me. in our record shop for maybe two years just, you just that was just the way it was and when it came yeah. into the shop I was just I don't think I've ever been more excited so you I still two years later you were <laughs> you were still like this is my this is my jam oh, two yeah. years later you're yeah. like finally yeah. because yeah. even when it came out it still sounded massively different and futuristic and it actually came in on the same day in soul sense as Atlantis LTJ Booker which is another absolutely seminal tune so to have those two pieces of vinyl suddenly in my collection it was just mm -hmm. unbelievable um why why was it important to you to have that on vinyl were you djing or getting into djing at that time because you're only what 15 when it came out on yeah, vinyl. 14 15 mm. um i think it was just what you did yeah at yeah that, age. that was just if you wanted to enjoy the music in its purest form you buy the record so you didn't you you didn't intend to use it for djing or were you getting involved in that scene at all i wanted uh, i already wanted to but i didn't have any decks i mean mm. my mum and dad had a record player um, my mum and dad weren't musos in any shape or form i mean there was you know our, our selection at home was the kind of big bangers of the day it was you know dire straits Meatloaf. No. Fleetwood <laughs> All Mac. the big names. I think there was a Vangelis album. <clears throat> oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, That's, you know. Sade. You know, it was like the big album <laughs> yeah. at the time. Yeah, but they yeah. weren't real aficionados. Tango so. in the Night and Brothers in Arms. Exactly. The, when the CDs first came out and I was in my record shop, those were the only two CDs you could basically buy. And people <laughs> used to come in, like they would sell like, you know, 150 records that they collected over 20 years and they walk out with Tango in the Night and Brothers in Arms. <laughs> yes. And I'd be like... So these are all 50p, right, boss? <laughs> so picking out Beatles records yeah. and stuff, you know. Yeah, it's, so it, it, yeah, it did start, it started early, the record collection. It's just interesting to me, because drum and bass is not particularly my, my area of ex expertise, but it's, it's interesting talking about that 
parallel between what I think of as kind of like social party music and what you're talking about, which is discovering this artist who is a lot more uh, emotive and sort of introspective in terms of their sound. I know it split people down the middle. Lots of people really did not want that stuff and they were they were annoyed if it got played. Do you know what I mean? And then there was like a, a, a group of people who just suddenly latched onto that and said, actually, do you know what? This is really intelligent. What, what they're doing is really clever. And the way these tracks are built is it's not just a throwaway drug song anymore. It's actually making something that's got elements of jazz in it. It's got elements of rare groove in it, you know? Like, by the time it gets to something like Horizons, uh, and uh, I was this morning, I was because I knew you were coming in, I was playing Logical Progression Volume 1, which is the classic yeah. intelligent drum and bass album of the era. But they were miles apart from everything else that was going on. And not everyone liked it, but the people that did really, really liked it and yeah. would chase that shit down wherever it was. Yeah, and obviously I'm a little bit younger than you, so I wasn't going out to any clubs. I was at school. Mm. So I had no frame of reference of where this fitted in in terms of club music or dance music or anything, really. It just, yeah, it just spoke to me. And, yeah, going back to what you're saying, the, the collecting the collecting records thing, a lot of it, I think, to begin with, was competition between friends as mm. well. It was... After school, we knew we got to know the days when the records were delivered at Soul Sense, and there were certain times of the day. And after school, it was a race to get down there and you know pick up the tunes that no one else has got. And I totally admit, I painted over covers. Hey, the cover up classic, yeah. you know, I did the whole thing because it, it, yeah, it did feel like a huge competition. And there was one guy in our school who knew the guys at the shop. He's actually gone on to be like a massively successful um, music engineer. He like won a Grammy a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, and he always got the best promos. And the jealousy I felt for that guy, <laughs> it's unbelievable. Yeah. I, wanted, I wanted to hurt him. I mean, it was, <laughs> you know, he, and, he, and he played on it. He used to bring into school, like he'd pull out kind of moving shadows. Just to promos, show you. you know? oh. It's like, oh, this is Dread Bass on promo. It's what, not coming uh, out for three months. See, I was very lucky because I, I worked in the record shop and I was in charge of all the rave records because I was the only one in the shop family who gave a shit about electronic music. Do you know what I mean? Um, when you work in a shop, that is that is a crunch time. Yeah. And we used to have Fridays were um, drum and bass and jungle. That was great. Didn't mind that at all. Very good. Monday, Tuesday, you get a US import house thing. That was, no one really bought that, so but it was nice to listen to, you know. Thursdays, Gabba Techno, oh, that was, that was a tough shift. <laughs> the currency of records in those days, I think, was... It was like you almost didn't have to play them, you just had to show them, mm. you know? I mean, that's quite a cool thing for young teenagers. I mean, you know... I'm younger than both of you again, I think. <laughs> but, like, obviously, music was a big thing at my school and a lot of the kids were into collecting records and stuff and there was definitely a status thing attached to having certain music in your collection or whatever. But, like, that is quite a fucking cool, wholesome thing for kids to get into. Like, that's not something you're going to look back on and be like, oh, I wasted all my pocket money on my POG collection. Well, they must what be worth, worth, they must be worth a pretty yeah, penny now, them. I'd imagine. Yes, yeah, I think some of them, some of the old Jungle records, I, you know, they, they go for silly money. I, I tell you what, 
what I found very interesting about drum and bass, uh, having like being a little bit older and having seen a lot of the different kind of strands. You know, I remember seeing Acid House and then Rave and then you know uh, even Garage and uh, or Speed Garage as it was, and they say all these different genres and all the big beat and all these things coming and going. And the, weirdly, the only one that still survives in every market town in Britain is drum and bass. Yeah. Mm. Any small town you go to, you will find some little hardcore bunch of maybe five, six DJs still banging out, putting on their own nights from, from Lincolnshire up to Scotland and back down. Yeah. They're, they're just, there's something about that music that has persisted where so many other styles have fallen by the wayside. Like to find a pure techno club or, you know, or a, a pure Detroit techno club, even even thinner wedge, mm. you know, to find those in your local town, you're really searching. But you will find drum, bass and jungle in every small town. That's so weird. <laughs> I think some of it might have to do with the tempo. It's so far away from anything else. It has to just live in its own little world, you know. And, you, and with other types of music, you know, dubstep, when that came along, it, it felt like it started to morph you know, it was easy to incorporate other sounds from other genres because they were a similar tempo and you started to get this kind of melding between mm. the genres. And that's amazing because that's where a lot of amazing creative stuff happens. But what it means is drama bass kind of had to just stay very pure. Um, let's move on, Pete, to your second phonographic memory. Um, OK, so a big switch. Um, pure imagination from the Willy Wonka soundtrack. Such a great song. Now you're talking. Yeah. Now, now everyone, <laughs> everyone's got a reference you know, point here. Can I just say? So you know, how Spotify does that thing where it tells you your biggest listens of the year, or whatever. Have you done this? Do you listen I'm to not Spotify? On Spotify no. Okay. So it shames you basically by showing you your well, it shames me by sh <laughs> showing you your, your what you've listened to and show tunes far and above <laughs> any other genre. Not what I expected to it see. Secret little show yeah, tunes. So I, I was very know. excited to see this on your on your list. Why yeah. why is this one a phonographic memory? Well, um aside from all the DJing and uh, making music and generally being a music fan. Um, I am a record collector. You know, I've built up quite a big collection over the years. Um, it's kind of fluctuated in size. Um, but the first records I ever got that I was given to, uh, given by my mum and dad, were not like artist albums or singles or anything like that. They were like story albums and comedy albums and and soundtracks and mm. stuff like that so like the first record i ever uh, owned was willow the wisp on wow. the oh, mavis crew at the fairy and all yeah. that oh, i loved that show and it williams did the voiceovers yeah and i had uh, a record called the adventures of mr pink whistle I don't know if you know that. Well, wow. I don't know that, but it that sounds like cut. a grinder handle. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a deep cut. Wow. Um, and, wow. and I also had Willy Wonka. Wow. And, I mean, I love the film. Yeah. And not through any sense of nostalgia or anything like that. I truly believe it is one of my favourite films of all time. I think it's amazing. Um... It's funny and entertaining and weird and slightly sinister as well. Mm. In, in it's a way that, dark, dark story, yeah. really. And, and, and it's funny, I was listening to a podcast the other day about um, 
back in the 70s. I mean, this is in the UK, but I feel like there are sort of comparisons to be made. In the 70s, there became this fascination with um, black magic and the occult in the UK. And it sort of came through in music and film. And it was almost like this kind of social contagion going on. You know, people, there were news stories about people being worried that kind of black masses were happening in Surbiton mm. and stuff like that. And um, it feels like the, the film has, has got slight sort of echoes of that in certain parts of it. You know, when they go, there's, there's a part in the film where they, they go through this tunnel and in the background when they're going through this tunnel, there's, there's images of sort of centipedes crawling over people's faces and, <laughs> and a chicken's head being chopped off. And this is a kid's film. Yeah. I mean, it's really strange. It's really strange. And I tell you what, I mean, because I, I knew this was on your list, uh, you know, again, I, I was going through it, I thought I'd, I'd watch it again. It's been a long time since I've watched it. I, I think I watched the Johnny Depp one, but I didn't really enjoy it. Mm. But it's such a weird thing because what he does, Willy Wonka walks in front of everyone and everyone's following him. And Willy Wonka's got a cane. And he'll go down two steps and then suddenly he'll swish his cane out really fast and you hear a sound. It'll smack against the side of the stairs. And the kids, and they're like, they're kids, you know, they're like children that have won a trip around the chocolate factory, <laughs> are literally jumping back to avoid being hit by this man's cane. Different times. Really different. <laughs> and, and there's one point which is I found particularly weird and disturbing where Mike TV is sat, stood just in front of him on the stairs and he's saying something about children and he starts oh. playing with his hair and he just pulls one of his hairs out. Yeah. So weird, so weird. And Gene Wilder's expression is halfway between kindly old gentleman and absolute psychopath. Totally. You know? He's got that strange sort of vacant uh, sort of, um, what would you even call it? That sort of smile he, he has and the sort of vacant eyes that, he, not even vacant. I don't know how to describe it, sort of slightly amused and like apart He's always from drifting away into his yeah. own little world. Yeah. But there was little touches that I just thought, that's really weird. At the end, he stops and he gets a flower. It looks like a daffodil. Mm. But he uses it as a teacup and he drinks mm. this imaginary cup of tea from this daffodil. And you're thinking, that's weird. He's he's drinking out of a daffodil at the end of this song. And you're just trying to get he, your head around that. And then he eats the cup. He eats the cup. <laughs> and you're like, where did that come but it, from? But, it's, but, those, but Roald Dahl was such a... He wrote yeah. in that incredibly yeah. creepy. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. it's... It's I mean, it's very different to the book, but it's very faithful in a way because it does capture that sort of sinister edge that Roald Dahl put in all his stories. Yeah. Did your parents buy the soundtrack so I had the after record, you saw it? No, I had the record okay. before I'd seen the film. Wow. Like people did with Hamilton. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't Sorry enjoy that one either, did you? I did see, yeah, I, I, I saw the film very shortly after. Mm. So they, they're kind of, you know, melded together in my mind. Um, and yeah, pure imagination is is I think widely regarded as, as like the the centerpiece tune. Um, and as you say, it's 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 a lovely song, but it's also it starts and ends with this strange kind of cyclical bell riff, which is really strange. Um, and the reason I picked it is it's. I think it's the first tune that I can remember playing over and over again and learning the lyrics <laughs> and singing along to it off by heart and imagining I was Gene Wilder, you know, mm -hmm. and yeah, that's I, I tried to sort of 
send my mind right back and like what was the first tune that I really got to know and, and sung over and over again and I think that was it. We'll begin with a spin traveling in the world of my creation what we'll see will defy explanation to view paradise simply look around and view it anything you want to do it want to change the world there's nothing to it um uh, have you ever been tempted to sample the track have well, you ever done it it's funny you should say that mm. because another reason why i picked it i think it kind of fits well with my other tracks because it has been one of the most sampled tunes in in hardcore jungle interesting for whatever reason i'm not exactly sure i wonder if they knew that they were they were, <laughs> they were kick-starting the yeah. world of drum and bass back then yeah. <laughs> And yeah, we may have, you know, we may or may not have used certain bits of it. Well, no, no one's, no one's going to look too deeply into that. <laughs> we have our copyright law problems. But as a, as a kid, when you first got into that, um, it, it struck me today, like, uh, uh, you know, it's quite otherworldly. And yeah. I, I presume you were sat there kind of on your own with a record. Do you know what I mean? That's like, right, like, it yeah. wasn't This wasn't something you were playing to all your mates and no. stuff like that. This is like you discovering... And getting obsessed with this one track. Yeah, it was there was a there was definitely a mystery to it. Yeah, that whole film I think is uh, a, a really good example of um, you know a children's film that really was made by crazed adults. Yes. You know? <laughs> <laughs> On that note. Yeah. No. <laughs> Pete, what is your third phonographic memory? Um, it is Lady Day and John Coltrane by Gil Scott Heron. And the reason I picked this actually is it's obviously an amazing tune. Um, My favourite Gil Scott Heron. Beautiful. Go. Um, but it's also the subject of one of the biggest regrets of my life. So I thought it might be interesting mm. to kind of just flip it and, and There's talk the about memory. that. Mm. Yeah. So um, as well as being massively into um, jungle and, and drum and bass when I was younger, uh, I also got massively into funk and soul and jazz and like many people of my age I think I got into it through Jamiroquai and Corduroy mm. and you know all the acid jazz stalwarts back then um, and I was at high school and I played a little bit of piano so we kind of formed a band me and three other friends and we started playing really bad knockoffs of, of Jamiroquai and Freak Power and, and stuff like that. Uh, we were called Suspicious Package. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite a subversive name for a jazz funk band. Yeah, I mean, it, we, the, the reason being, it was around the time when the IRA was still laying bombs. Yeah. 
and it was do you remember when the grand national got cancelled yes mm. yeah i do yes. remember that that was around the time my dad we was searching. furious oh, <laughs> yeah we were searching for a name around that time and uh, and you know all the all the news reports were a suspicious package has been found and we're like let's just go with that yeah and it stuck um so yeah uh, we started out playing that stuff and naturally we tried to kind of dig a little bit deeper and, and kind of go back through time. And it was at this point I started going to college and subsequently went to uni with a guy called Christos, who I became really good friends with. And he was like 10 years older than me. And he came from the Giles Peterson, Patrick Forge, Bob Jones kind of school. And he had an amazing record collection. So he started schooling me on, you know, where all of this came from. So it was Roy Ayers and it was Lonnie Liston Smith and it was Johnny Hammond and Ramsey Lewis and, you know, the list goes on. And one of them was Gil Scott Heron. And the moment I heard Gil Scott Heron, I was on board. Mm. I mean, it was just immediate. He was just brilliant. The first thing is obviously the voice kind of imperfect, but just so raw and full of, authenticity and passion and and the songs are just bulletproof i yeah, mean they really we, we we started learning you know as soon as we got into gil scott heron me and the band we, we started learning loads of gil scott heron songs and chords wise and arrangement wise they're so simple mm -hmm. there's nothing to them it's just the the songs are bulletproof mm -hmm. and yeah so we we started playing the bottle in our sets and gun and when you are who you are and we started playing lady day and john coltrane and we didn't have a singer uh so we kind of divvied up the singing between us and i i was the one who sung lady day and john coltrane at our gigs um now at the sort of turn of the millennium gil scott heron was still touring quite a bit in the uk he he came and played at the, the jazz cafe sort of three or four years in a row and we went every time and he was such a good performer um raconteur comedian he was so funny on stage um but you know anyone that knows gil scott heron's story knows you know he lived a hard life he he went through some stuff and so towards the end the last few gigs we saw him his voice was not up to scratch can you see where this is possibly going um so we're at the gig camden town jazz cafe full up gil scott heron's on stage he says we're gonna play lady day and john coltrane now but my voice can't do it anymore no is there anybody... is this gonna happen is he gonna tell us what i think he's gonna tell us is there anybody in the crowd that knows the lyrics that would like to come up on stage and sing it oh my days and i bottled it oh, oh the butter I, I completely folded did some egypt get up on stage instead and you had well, to watch them shatter your dreams i think what they did is they had after no one came up um so there was guy... a whole blank hang on so they asked and then there was this whole blank space of time yeah. where fate was trying to move yes. you into oh. this and all my thing. bandmates were like Get in there. Come on. And I just, I just couldn't, I froze. What were you feeling? You were just like, it's too much. Too much. Yeah. Just too much. 
Um, and That's why yeah. I carry beta blockers in my purse. Yes. Yeah, you'd be, I'd be necking <laughs> those like, yeah. oh, I'll get them to you. Well, I just, you know, it, it, it was such a surprise, you know, yeah. if I'd known, maybe yeah. I could have kind of conceptually got it into my head. But yeah, and eventually they obviously had someone waiting in the wings, like, because this just guy sidled yeah. up who was this amazing session singer mm. and just, you know, happened to be there and then sung the song. But, <clears throat> yeah, I'd like... I'm I'm fairly happy with my life, the way it's turned out so far, and, you know, regrets. I've had a few. Yeah. Um, but that one... That one comes back yeah, to me. Yeah, I bet you just... It eats away at me because I had the chance. Yeah. And I... Imagine I getting up that. there with... Bill Scott Heron and that amazing band and then fucking it up. Well, well that's <laughs> well, well, maybe that's True. what would have happened. Well, I mean, I, I, I totally feel, I mean, I feel for you on that because I can just imagine the situation, I can imagine how my own brain would be. Like, you'd really want to do it, but it would be terrifying, especially, it's, it's oh, a big yeah. venue, do you know what I mean? And yeah. a spontaneous yeah. proposition to yeah, without having a, having a rehearsal or any that's shit it. like that. I think I was, I was, I think I was 19, something oh, like wow. that. Youthful, yeah. You're probably like, this will come up again. Yeah. yeah. No <laughs> My life is all ahead of me. Well, it's, I'm, I'm all, all about disappointing Gil Scott Heron stories <laughs> because I have one of my own, actually. Okay. Uh, so when I was DJing uh, at the Source in Oxford, uh, I was doing like the downstairs, doing breaks and stuff and all kinds of things and old funk and so and new modern stuff. But I'd mix it all together. It was like a real mishmash of everything. And Guy came to see me and he was starting a new night. I think... Everything was named after aliens in those. I think it was called Area 51 the night or something. And it was all based around the X-Files. But uh, God knows why, because what he was actually doing was booking great soul acts. And he booked Gil Scott Heron. And I didn't know the guy, but he phoned me up. Would you come and play, like, some old school, maybe a bit of old hip-hop, bit of, bit of soul, that sort of thing? I said, yeah, so it's at the venue. I was like, oh, this is sounding really good. And then he goes, you're warming up for Gil Scott Heron. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, my God. God, because he was totally, like, just the biggest hero to me. I absolutely loved him. So, you know, that was it. I was down the record shop next day buying everything I bloody could, you know, selling old records to buy new ones to make sure I had this amazing set. And I practised the living shit out of it every day. I mean, I was ready for this gig. And I got 30 or 40 of my mates all to come and see me. And I was playing, and 650 people came into the mm. venue. And I was just... And they are all dancing away to my music. And then the guy who was setting up the night. So it tapped me on the shoulder. He said, I just got to make an announcement. So he just turned down a bit. So I turned oh, no. the music down and he just goes, I'm really sorry, but Gil's gone missing in London. Uh, he's basically, because at the time he was just a massive co-fiend, yeah. basically. Uh. And somewhere between Heathrow Airport and London and Oxford, he got on the party bus and he didn't come back. So he just said, oh, I'll never forget it. He, he looked at me and kind of, you know, when someone catches your eye and they're going to say something you don't want to hear mm. and they look away in a guilty way. <laughs> and then he just said, if anyone wants a refund, they can go down to the main desk now. And I watched 650 people walk out on me. And it was just like my little posse of mates in the corner just going, mm, well, we might go too because this is shit now. <laughs> but then, then, brilliantly, just a couple months later, I get a phone call again from this guy and he's like, you won't believe this. I was like, what? He's coming back. He's going he's gonna to make up for it. Will you play again? So I get there, 650 people walk in, I'm playing my tunes, tap on the shoulder, I've just got to make an announcement. No. <laughs> Walks over, I'm sorry, but Gil has got lost again. Oh, fuck And no. won't be playing tonight. Um, no. It's slightly better the second time because the band then played 
instrumental versions for 40 minutes and they were unbelievably good. But once again, the band finished and everyone went to get their refund mm -hmm. and that was me playing to an empty room. So twice I was stood up by <laughs> Gil Scott Heron and I watched a total of 1,200 or 300 people walk out on me within the space of a couple of months because Gil was having a good time somewhere in London. Regrets. I've had a few. <laughs> what do you think would have happened if you had, okay, if, if something had been different, if you had the beta blockers in your mm. purse and you're like, okay, yeah, this is my time. I'm 19. I realise in a, in a um, you know, moment of clarity here, I won't get this opportunity again. How do you think it would have gone? Whoa. Would you have like gotten up there and kind of gotten into your stride or would it just have been rabbit in the headlights no, the whole way through? I think I might have been rabbit in the headlights. Yeah. I mean, uh, Pretty sure, you know, the mic would have been wobbling in my hands. Oh. Can you imagine? I mean, I, mean I am, even though I'm, you know, I quite regularly DJ to, you know, thousands of people, I'm actually not a born performer in any way. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I'm, I am, as I said before, I'm, I'm quite an uh, introspective kind of person. Um, and the idea, yeah, of getting up, not only on stage in front of, 650 people because that's okay because as i said you know we as a band um we actually at one point we felt like suspicious package was it's, it's going it's gonna go off yeah no, we were you know we, we actually played the jazz cafe a couple of times brilliant we had yeah. some kind of management possibly arriving at some gigs and and we played to some big crowds but it was that was all very planned, you know. Yeah. Every, I knew exactly what to do, and, yeah. and with the DJing, I understand exactly what I need to do. It's it's that sudden, you've got to get up there now. Yeah, the the, the left field unexpected. Yeah, I'm, I'm not about that. Yeah, yeah, you. Are, I mean, I, I'm kind of similar. Like I always, whenever I go to DJ, I mean, sometimes I'll plan quite a lot of the set, but I always make sure I know like the first two or three tunes that I'm going to play, mm -hmm. because if I don't get that right, I'll fall to pieces. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? As long as I know the first two mixes are going to go great, you know I'll be I'll be absolutely fine. Mm. But if uh, if like all of a sudden if your set gets pulled and you have to play at a different time and you really can't start with that tune anymore, man, that gives me the wobbles. I just never I actively avoid prep, even just mm. mental prep. I don't even want to think. Like I played, I DJ Jazz Cafe on Saturday night for the first time in a few months actually, and um, it was. Fucking mental from the get go, absolutely <laughs> mental, non stop until the lights went up. And that's four and a half hours of like solid, you have to take them with you on whatever mm. journey you're going on. Um, and I, and I, it always happens to me that I'll get about an hour in and I'll be like, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I text to my boyfriend, like, I'm going to be sick. I'm going to puke. I can't take it. I need to. Like, I remember the first time I played there. And because I'm I'm so terrible with planning and I never think about anything. The first time I played there, I remember in my mind constructing an email to the booker being like, dear Lev, this is not, the, I can't do this gig. Thank you for the opportunity. Oh. But this not, just because I just wanted to die. Yeah. But I did, I'm not sure if prep would help me or if that's just... Well, I can, the, when I was mixing electronic stuff, which I find a very... Like nowadays I play lots of old soul music and jazz and things like that. So, you know, mixing isn't... When it comes to disco, I still do a lot of mixing. But, you know, a lot of the time it's just placing the tunes nicely one after yeah. another. But when I was playing, like, for instance, house music or even in me drum and bass phases, you know, I'd have these, I'd have my little 
wedge of, of music ready to go and I'd kind of know and then I'd be all hype and excited mm. and sometimes I would just mix through an hour and a half two hours worth of music in about 30 minutes <laughs> yeah. and then you'd just yeah. be looking yeah. at the end of the bag yeah. and going oh yeah, shit yeah, yeah. that's the thing it's like I mean yeah especially for those long gigs you do think okay I'm going to run out of shit to play. I mean, it never happens and it's always fine. Yeah. And like by the last, you know, when there's an hour and a half to go, I'm like, this is fucking great. I wish it could last forever. But when you're staring down the barrel of another fucking three and a half hours yes, of keeping this yeah. thing going, Jesus Christ. I did like that in the in the old uh, rave days though because uh, you there weren't many records around, certainly in the early, early days. And so, you know, you would play, you'd play your stuff and then as you went past the three o'clock in the morning stage, everyone was running out of records, you know. And then <laughs> and then there would be this, you know, you'd get to a certain twilight hour where all the records would be inverted and you'd be playing the second track in on the B-side. <laughs> Some of those were perlers. Some yeah. of them were just amazing. But, you you know, you couldn't really, you couldn't plan to get there. Yeah. It would just happen to yes, you. Yes, that's you know? exactly right. And that's why I resist planning for yeah. that and for everything um, else. I'm I'm a sort of halfway house mm. guy. I think I like to I like to plan, but I also like to have a certain amount of um, leeway. I mean, generally in life, I'm someone who just says things will work themselves out. It'll yes. be fine. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of that going on with with my sets, and um, and it was the same with with the band. Actually, we we used to practice to a certain degree but then just go off on you know 10 mm. minute jazz yeah. funk odysseys yeah well i always i always say uh have a plan but be prepared to drop it at a moment's notice yeah but you yeah. but you i mean you spend hours with yeah. planning you know the day of a gig and you know thinking yeah. about it and i just resentfully drag my records but out you the know door it, and that's that's it's, it's because of the, i can get paid it's really because of the type of music when i was playing genre bound music like house or hardcore or anything like that um i used to just grab a load of records out of the thing um pick a few special mm. ones put them at the front of the box mm. that's it that would be it and then i'd go there and you i would i wouldn't know what i was going to play and often i'd be playing back to back with someone else and you'd mm. have to hear what they were going to play to decide what you're going to play next mm. Because you can do that when it's a, a genre thing. You know it's going to be between 120 and 130 BPM. So somewhere around there, mm. you'll be able to mix everything that comes along and you'll just go on that journey and that's great. But when, for example, you're mixing disco and certain disco records, you know, the, the tempos change halfway through. Mm. And there's often only a little break in the middle or a little bit at the beginning that you can mix in and out. Yeah. Mm. And I like I like that feeling of being able to seamlessly drop into something else because of coming up through house music and all that sort of stuff. Mm. So I try and bring that into my my, my mixing uh, in that. So that requires a level of planning because I couldn't randomly pull them out yeah. and expect to mix those tracks that's together. that's why you're a better DJ than me. Oh, stop. For now and for always. Now, it's all about <laughs> your library in the end. It's all about mm. what you choose. So. Um, have you, do you feel like the uh, the that that regretful... That thing that you have, which is very mm. relatable, you know, mm. I think we we would all have probably done the same thing in that situation. Has that informed future decisions that you made then within your music yeah. career and elsewhere? Would you say yes now? Interesting question. <laughs> I, I mean, it's impossible to say, really. Um, I suppose the problem is you were 19 then. Mm. I was a different person. You, everyone's a different person when they're young, do you know what I mean? And yeah. looking at it now, in a way, you can look at it for in a much more holistic way 
now. Yeah. But then it's just a sudden moment of do or die. And that's... I don't think I thought about it for a long time. You just buried it. Maybe buried it or maybe didn't really consider it much of a big deal for mm. a long time. And it was only maybe 10 years later where I thought, oh, my goodness, what a chance. Mm. You know, um, and then it started niggling at me. So I, it probably didn't have a huge effect because, it, yeah, I didn't really care at the time. Where, well, at least I, I acted like I didn't care. Mm. Maybe deep down, yeah. you know, there was shame <laughs> and, and regret and everything else. Mm. There's so much love coming from me and Anne towards you right now. <laughs> so <I'm feeling laughs> yeah, seriously. Big... <laughs> you know, going to be so much, Listen, at least you were there. He didn't even fucking show up for my <laughs> <laughs> remembered after and I don't know whether this means that I had more I was a bit braver after the fact but we used to hang out at the, the jazz cafe quite a lot around that time we used to see a lot of a lot of acts and um, we went to see the blackbirds mm. oh I love them they were in my cafe on Saturday no way. Well, the, the remaining ones, yeah, because they rehearse at the premises. Uh, Seriously? Yeah, and they, they were all sad, and I was like... Ah, <gasps> Well, well, <laughs> it turned, well we, we gave them a CD of our music, and um, they went off, you know, they went back to the US, and then they got in touch with us. <gasps> like wow. The guitar player, Orville Saunders, <gasps> got in touch with us and said, I really like your music. Oh, what a moment. He said, the next That's time amazing. you're over... Um, you know, let us know and and we'll meet up. And so we actually went out for a drink with the Blackbirds in Camden Town. Fabulous. That's amazing. Well, that's even so maybe that was, you know, maybe that seven. was the bravery coming through. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, yeah, that was, what a that cool was story. bizarre being in, you know, the the Red Lion or whatever in Camden Town. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just having, having a booze up with the Blackbirds. Yeah. So how was Donald? Was he nice? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That um, jazz, UK jazz, not that they're from the UK, but the, the UK jazz funk thing is coming back in a big, big way. I mean, I say this because Incognito and Brand New Heavies are yeah, coming up back, a lot back, on the back. jazz event playlist. And that suggests to me that they're, you know. Well, I think jazz. I think it was under, and not underappreciated, but I feel like it wasn't as celebrated as the unique thing that it was at the yeah, time. Yeah, I think a lot of a lot of. There are a lot of amazing artists that went under the radar, like Light of the World. And, oh, you know, I love God. Light of the World. I, so I played Time at Jazz Cafe, the whole 10-minute version. Yeah, yeah. And it's one, one of those things, you you put it on, people are like, who wants this? And then, you know, eight minutes in, everyone is losing their fucking minds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, that is like the centrepiece of a lot of the, the, the sets the, the, that I play. The closest the UK's ever come to having their own chic. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. that, that 12-inch is just a perfect... Incredible. You, you could say to anyone, oh, this is an Niles Rogers production, and they go, yeah, yeah, I you totally know, believe that. Um, China Burton, you don't know about don't my know. love? No, I don't no, know that what's one. that? I put that on my Spotify. Balance out some of the shit. It's expensive, though. Yeah, expensive a lot of them are. Well. A lot of them are. <laughs> I think the acid jazz kind of talking loud era, mm. I think that one of the problems that happened with that is there was a lot of noise either side of it. Do you know, there was, mm. it was like a, because at the start, I mean, the reason they're called acid jazz is they were kind of trading off the, the buzz of acid house, but they yeah. still wanted to play funk. You know, so they, they called it acid jazz because that kind of allowed them to get the, the kids, the youth well, wasn't interested. The story, well, I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, wasn't the story that, I don't know whether it was Giles Peterson or someone else, got on the mic at some kind of event and said, fuck acid house, this is acid jazz. Ah, that's where it started. Right, I don't know if that's true. Yeah. Sounds typical ask, of those grumpy, yeah, yeah. grumpy acid jazz. Next time I'm on Totally Wide Radio, I'll ask uh, yeah. Eddie Pillar. Yeah. He'll, he'll I'm about. sure he'll claim, I'm sure he'll, he'll, uh, he'll claim credit for it. Um, they oh, when we were talking about um, redoing samples as well, all of that earlier, like all the early Galliano stuff, mm. um, they sound like samples from mm. things like Cantaloupe and all that sort of stuff. I heard in Hancock, they weren't. They replayed them all. So what they did is they they paid to do a cover and then they wrapped over the top, and that's how they got round. Amazing. All of that sort. I think of there stuff. was there was another band, uh, Japanese UFO. Yeah, they are they brilliant. They did a very similar thing. Yeah. It sounds like all 60s espionage film yeah. soundtracks. Really psychedelic as well. Yeah, but it was all, I think, completely recreated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah they were underrated. I'd, I'd like to go and see them now. Yeah. <laughs> and a, Light of the World. I want yeah. them in Light of the World yeah. on a yeah. double bill. Yeah, incredible. <laughs> let's not get into, let's not fall down the fucking manhole of underappreciated. So, <laughs> bands <laughs> that were underappreciated in their time because we'll never get out well, of listen, here. Um, thank you very much for coming and sharing thank your you phonographic memories uh, today. Right. Now, the reason, Anne, that I wanted to invite Pete on. Tell me more. Yeah, uh, it's because uh, we were at a friend's <laughs> book launch. And we're just chatting away. You get around town, oh, don't you? Oh, man, I'm like launching. a literary agent and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> um, uh, no, it's Mel Harrison's book, who has also appeared in the podcast. Oh, brilliant. And uh, we were both there, and we were chatting, and I think we started talking about uh, hardcore and drum bass and mm -hmm. blah, 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 as old ravers do. That's all we ever talk about, really. Uh, but, you know, I was very into a, an act called Scanner, and not everyone's kind of heard of Scanner. Only people who were deep in the scene at the time really mm -hmm. knew that. But it was very important, very scene-changing music that totally... It's, for me, it bridged the techno sound with the breaks. And it's also the start of that dark movement that came in. But it was, it was a real game-changer. And Pete was like, oh, I love Scanner. <laughs> and you told me a story about uh, how you'd gone to a... a drum bass concert or drum concert to see Scanner and you'd made your own shirt and you know, written Scanner uh, on I it I didn't go to uh, a gig but I, I have made a Scanner t-shirt yes mm. um, and I got in contact with him through Discogs and, and basically begged to get like old dats of his music <laughs> so I could remix them but sadly he's uh, he's tight on that yeah, isn't he yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah. Ju I'm just thinking oh my goodness you're not going to believe this are you I'm wearing? actually wearing it. <gasps> I'm actually wow. wearing it. Show me, show me. We're getting the photos out. Oh, this is very good. <laughs> I, that wasn't planned, I have to say. That is that is complete chance. Amazing. <laughs> well, listen, this was planned. 
<laughs> because uh, we oh, like to, we like to um, <laughs> we like to give our guests something back. And when I heard that story, I thought it was so amazing. I got you this. Happy Christmas. Happy Christmas. Wow. Uh, my... This is unexpected. <laughs> this news, uh, let me audio describe what's happening. Yes, describe. Eamon just gave Pete uh, a lovely, lovingly wrapped gift. He's opening it up. There's a look of suspense on his face. <laughs> <laughs> suspense and suspicion. Uh, oh. Looks like an item of clothing. <laughs> Unwrapping it. Oh, look at that. It's another scanner t-shirt. It's a this beautiful. <laughs> it's got it's got the fists on it, got which is fist. like the classic scanner logo. That's so cool. Thank you so much. So I thought because a uh, lovely thing to do. I have I have the, the pleasure of being married to a screen printer. So yes. uh, I thought I'd just have a word with her and see, can you can you knock one of those out? That is just a one off. I can't believe you still have the original t-shirt because I thought that must have gone years ago. So I'll get him a new one. Well, I mean go. I'm not much of a sort of fashionista, so things yeah. stick around a long time. There you go. Wardrobe. Well, listen, I hope you've got that in another <laughs> that will 10 last years. Another 10 years yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Oh, it's oh, great it's to have pleasure. you. Thanks so Thanks much. Thanks for, for coming. coming on. <laughs> Lovely. Hey! Yay! That was brilliant. Thank it's you so much. Good.